Well, Christopher, I say we've come a long way since episode one. I would say so, that we have. And I think we've experimented with some different styles of evil crimes. I think we have. Um, But I think it's time we go back to the style of episode three, if you can remember that far back, um, and divulge the tale of a truly gruesome crime. Or in better words, gruesome crimes. Very true, because this next person we're going to talk about didn't just kill one person. But we have to give some props to a follower we have in Fort Smith, Arkansas area, Nicole, who actually suggested we dive deeper into the story we're about to tell you. Most definitely. And like we said, uh, we listen to what y'all want to hear, and we're happy that some of you have been sharing the names of the murders that strike your interest. But Christopher, who are we going to be looking at this week? Well, Dylan, we are diving deeper into the world and psyche of Ed Kemper. I'm not sure if anyone listening has heard of Ed before. No, but he is uh, definitely evil crime worthy. (laughs) He's a crazy one. So we're going to jump right into it and uh, give you guys what you want. Absolutely. So on that note, I'm Christopher Wilkes. I'm Dylan Malone, and this is Evil Crimes. child gone wrong and he had all the markings of a serial killer from his early childhood and we definitely want to start there absolutely dylan so let's set the scene in 1948 in california ed is born as the middle child and only son into his family his dad a world war ii vet worked as an electrician and his mom well she was anything but proud of the work his dad did That is very true, and we found record that his mom would even downgrade his dad's work by saying that it was menial, and his dad has even been quoted as saying that the suicide missions in wartime and the atomic bomb testings were nothing compared to living with her. Ouch. Talk about bad (laughs) reputation. I would say so. So right from the beginning, we see Ed was born into a struggling family. Now, at an early age, Ed began displaying signs of concerning behavior. There were two instances as a young child where he killed the family cats. Uh, Guys, one he buried alive, and when it was finally dead, he dug it up and put its head on a spike. Yeah. Another one he killed just because he thought it favored his younger sister, Eileen. And weirdly, those weren't the only warning signs. So he also took to mutilating Eileen's dolls by removing their heads and cutting off their hands just for fun. Poor Eileen. (laughs) She had no dolls and no cats. Um, But we also want to note that he had some favorite games as a child. So take a moment, think back on your childhood and your favorite games and see if they can compare. So They won't. They won't. (laughs) One was called Gas Chamber. And another one was called Electric Chair. So he would have Eileen tie him up, flip an imaginary switch, and then would tumble over and pretend to be dying of gas inhalation and electric shocks. Yeah, I mean, I don't know about you, Dylan, but that was not a normal childhood game I played. I I played with Legos, but, (laughs) you know, definitely not. Um, And I think the worst thing that we ever did as kids was probably kill some ants. It's true. 
Uh, but Christopher, tell us about what he used to do at night when he was a kid. I would love to. Thank you. So, his older sister, Susan, used to tease him about his teacher and ask why he never tried to kiss her. Well, rather than brushing it off or being embarrassed, he responded simply, If I kiss her, I'd have to kill her first. Obviously. Now, if that's not alarming enough, he would also sneak out at night, armed with his dad's bayonet, and go to his second grade teacher's house to watch her through her window. I mean, just with the dad's bayonet. You know, just armed with a bayonet. <laughs> yep. And so that's pretty insane. Um, and we also want to note, before going too much further, that he had two near-death experiences as a child. So we talked about Eileen and how horrible her childhood childhood was with him but his other sister Susan tried to push him in front of an oncoming train once and then another incident occurred when she threw him into the deep end of a pool knowing he couldn't swim and he almost drowned I think we can all agree the odds were never in his favor and thank you for the Hunger Games reference anytime Dylan now that we have an idea of how he grew up though let's talk more about when he began showing deeper signs of struggle Let's do. So, yes. So, in 1957, his parents divorced, and he was forced to go live with his mom in Montana. Now, his mom was, as we have already seen, anything but pleasant. She was domineering, an alcoholic, and she would often belittle him and humiliate him. If that wasn't bad enough, she would make him sleep in a locked basement out of fear that he would harm his sisters. I mean, we can see that he already has some pretty aggressive tendencies about locking him in a basement. Yeah, I think we know by now, with our other cases, uh, locking someone in a basement is never the right decision. May she rest in peace. Oh, poor Sylvia. So, um, not only did she do all of this, but she would often mock him for his size. So we haven't really touched on it, but Ed was a tall kid. And by the age of 15, he already stood 6 foot 4 inches. And she started calling him... And we quote, a real weirdo. So that has to have an effect on a child. I know it had um, an effect on me. Yeah, and Christopher's actually rather yep. tall. So um, if that wasn't bad enough, she refused to act as a mother and support him in hours of need out of fear of turning him gay. And she even told him that he reminded her of his father and that no woman would ever love him. Well, Ed made an effort at 15 to escape this horrible reality. And he went back to California to try and reconcile with his dad. Now, when he got there, though, he found out that his dad has remarried and already had a stepson. Like, granted, we don't know, like, the time space that happened right here, but that was really fast. Mm, Yeah. We can speculate that Ed became too much for his dad at the time, and his dad moved him to his grandparents' house in Northfolk. So, and in some interviews that we watched with Ed, um, Ed actually hated living with his grandparents. He even stated that his grandma would often emasculate him and his grandpa, and that around this time, his grandpa was becoming senile. I swear. I mean, this guy can't catch a break. He can't. Now, we want to take a second here and give you fair warning. The rest of this episode is going to be pretty graphic. Very true. So, listeners, be warned. Um, But, Christopher, what happens next? Oh, should I tell him? You should. I think we should. Okay. So, Ed is not happy living with his grandparents, as we've already told you. He doesn't appreciate how his grandma is being treated, and he wants to do something about it. This brings us to August 27th, 1964. See, his grandpa is at the groceries, and this leaves Ed alone with his grandma. Well, 
An argument begins while sitting at the kitchen table. As the argument ensues, he's growing more irritable at the moment. And in an act of frustration, he gets up, goes to grab a rifle grandfather had given him for hunting, returns to the kitchen, and crazy enough, shoots his grandma in the head. He then fires two more shots in her back. Some reports even notate that there were signs of post-mortem stab wounds with a kitchen knife. He went to town. Yeah. But let's not forget that right now his grandpa isn't home. So, when his grandpa is returning home, Ed can hear him coming up the driveway. So Ed goes out to the driveway and then shoots his grandpa dead. Now, what gets us at this point is that him, not knowing what to do because he's still a kid, he picks up the phone and calls his mom. Of all people, you're going to call... Of all the people in the world, the woman he probably hates the most at this point. I mean, he did try to get away from her. He did. Yeah. I mean, yeah. But nonetheless, his mom urges him to call the police. So he did. And afterward, he patiently waits for the police to arrive and take him into custody. Yeah, so when they initially question him and ask him why he committed these murders, he says, and we quote, I just wanted to see what it felt like to kill Grandma. That's it. That's it. That's it. I mean, really? (laughs) Uh, Whatever. I mean, he then admits that the only reason he killed his grandfather is so he wouldn't have to see what he had done to his wife. I mean, I guess you give him props for sparing his grandfather in some way? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. But at this point, he's on trial for these murders. And the psychiatrist, Donald Lunday, writes that these murders were a way for Ed to avenge the rejection of both his father and his mother. Um, And throughout the trial, it's found incomprehensible that a 15-year-old could actually commit these murders. So the court psychiatrist diagnosed him with paranoid schizophrenia, and they sent him to the criminally insane unit at a local state hospital. Yeah, now, Dylan, this is where things get interesting. If they weren't already interesting. (laughs) Yes. But tell us, what happens next? Yeah, so, well, we want to look next at his time at the state hospital, because we begin to see where he can be manipulative to get exactly what he wants. Yeah, and we definitely want to look at that because it's so important to understand the side of him. Exactly. So we do. We do want to know. So right away, once he's admitted, his psychiatrists and social workers disagree with the court's diagnosis. Yeah, disagree. They say that he shows no sign of schizophrenia and even comment on his high IQ at the time, which was 136. So after more tests, they re-diagnose him as having a personality trait disturbance called passive-aggressive type. They then retest his IQ, and he scores even higher at 145. I mean, that's freaking high. But, like, I mean, passive-aggressive type? Right. I mean, we like, know a lot of people like extreme that. Extreme diagnosis <laughs> and just kind of said, this. we can keep him here with this. Yes. Um, now, we do want to note that um, Ed wanted to keep good markings with his doctors. And they said that he prided himself on being a good prisoner. So they started training him to help administer psychiatric tests to other inmates. Horrible decision. Horrible. Like, why? Yes, like, you're going to have an inmate that is in your care 
psychologically, psychologically, and, and a mental hospital, like, analyzing other inmates. And, like, yeah, like, and you're going to teach them how to do these tests. I worst decision on their part. Yeah, um, and we can actually say worst decision because Ed started to understand the test and this is how he started to be able to manipulate his psychiatrist while they actually gave him similar tests Mm -hmm. so in later interviews about you know about his time at the hospital he said that he actually liked and learned a lot from the sex offenders on in the ward that he was in and interacting with them is where he learns that it's best to kill a woman after raping her and the only reason why is to avoid witnesses yeah okay how in the world was this man allowed to get this far? Who knows? Who knows? I mean, he is a serial killer. He he is that. They are. So we know they're tactful with how they accomplish their goals. Oh, well, getting matters worse. Yeah. Well, Let's get worse. Yeah. In 1969, Ed is released from the hospital. And this is where his life took the drastic turn. See, in 1972, from recommendation from his probation psychiatrist, his juvenile record was expunged so that he could live as normal a life as possible. Okay, I it's, know friends that have DWIs and they can't get those things expunged. They can't. <laughs> like, those things stick with you. And we actually are going to read what his psychiatrist said because it is... It just blows her mind. Yes. That he was like, no, we'll just, we'll just take this off his record. Yeah. Um, but anyway. Yeah, so Dylan, let me get into what he actually said. So... He was noted by saying, I would think I was dealing with a well-adjusted, intelligent man if I hadn't heard of or had any prior knowledge of of Kimber's past. Since it may allow him more freedom as an adult to develop his potential, I would consider it reasonable to have a permanent expunction of his juvenile record done. That's just crazy. It is insane. It is insane. It is insane. So he then moved back in with his mom. And her new husband in Santa Cruz. And he enrolled in community college to pursue, get this guys, the police academy. Of all things. Of all things. So on the surface, I mean, it it kind of looks like his life is turning around. Yeah. So one would think that, Dylan. But like we've said on previous episodes, would we cover a case with a happy ending? I don't think so. No, I don't think so. So, he's actually turned down from the police academy, um, actually just because of his size, because right now he's standing six foot nine. And also at this point, his relationship with his mother begins decaying again as well. Um, But at first, this doesn't impact him too much. I mean, he keeps up some relationships he's made with local law enforcement, and he even saves up some money to move into his own place with a friend. He begins working at the highway department. Yes, and at this time, he's actually also involved in a bad car accident. See, while riding his motorcycle, he's hit by another driver and badly injured. He winds up suing the person and coming into, you know, some money. And so he buys a new car. Well, this is where things turn even more south. Even more south. (laughs) And it sure does. So with his new car, he got a Ford Galaxy, and he begins riding up and down the interstates and... He starts noticing the large number of women hitchhiking along the way. Yeah, so in a drastic turn, he begins keeping items in his car like plastic bags, knives, blankets, and of course, 
handcuffs. Of course. I mean, all the necessities. <laughs> Absolutely. So, exactly. So, with these items in his car, he begins picking up random girls. At this time, though, he simply picks them up, drives them to where they want to go, and drops them off. Innocent enough. And we can imagine that um, that doesn't last long, though, because after a short while, he begins having, and this is what he called them in the interviews that we've, that we've watched, he calls them little sapples, but we would just know them as homicidal sexual urges. And he now wants to begin acting on them. Yeah, so Dylan, this brings us to May 7th, 1972, when Ed picks up two 18-year-olds. Now, their names were Mary Pesh and Anita Luchessa, Fresno State students trying to hitchhike to Stanford University. Now, from what I know, like this is a normal practice, kind yeah. of like if they're close by, college kids, you know, hitching a ride back in Yeah, in hitchhiking was totally different back then. Right. Um, so he picks them up, and after driving for about an hour, Ed found a secluded wooded area near Alameda um, that he knew from working with the highway department. Now, Mary and Anita had not noticed at this point that they drifted off course. Yes. So he actually, his intent was to rape, but he remembered something from his time at the hospital. He sure does. So he remembers his time with the sex offenders, his favorite group to work with. Now, what did they, <laughs> we remember what they said. Right? And he doesn't want to leave behind any witnesses. So what does he have to do? So he manages to handcuff Mary and lock Anita in the trunk of the car. He then begins stabbing Mary with a knife until she dies. And then he does similar acts to Anita. Now, one thing we want to mention here to add a little bit of context into Ed's mental state, it's noted that as he handcuffed Mary, the back of his hand brushed up against her breast um, and he felt embarrassed. And he even said something kind of like, whoops, I'm sorry. Yeah, which we find so strange. I mean, it's almost as if he was afraid of a living right? woman. And yeah, especially based on what happens next. So true. So when both Mary and Anita are dead, he places them in his trunk and heads for his apartment. Now, the crazy thing is, he pulled over on the way, <clears throat> sorry, he was pulled over on the way by police for a broken taillight. Mm -hmm. Now, the officers converse with him but never suspect that there are bodies in the truck. I mean, I mean, why would they? Yeah, I mean, right? nothing's going wrong. Nothing smells, yeah. Well, once at the apartment, he notices his roommate is gone. He takes photographs of the girls, and he then has sex with their corpses. And sadly, it gets worse. So he then dismembers her bodies, and he decapitates them. And he puts the remains in plastic bags, I'm assuming from his car. Yeah. Um, and abandons them near uh, Loma Prita Mountain. Now, before dumping their heads in a ravine, he performs irimashio uh, with both. Now, we want to make sure everyone is on the same page here. So, in case you're wondering, irimashio is a form of oral sex where the man actively thrusts his penis into another person's mouth. Yeah, so I guess we're not talking about a beach. We're not talking about a BJ. Well, and this guy who had his juvenile record expunged. Yeah, like this is the guy that got his record expunged. So, and just to live his life as normal as possible. Yeah. Well, the police aren't on to him yet. And he's able to make it out <clears throat> to September 14th, 1972, where his urges, well, they reappear. He picks up a 15-year-old girl called a co 
coup. Apologies if we pronounced that wrong. Yes. We're trying. As she was hitchhiking to a dance class after missing her bus, he drives her to a secluded area where he manages to pull a gun on her and hold her at gunpoint. Yeah, the weird thing is, though, and we're not really sure how it happens because there weren't a lot of accounts of it, but he manages to lock himself out of his car. Well, Aku, out of fear, lets him back in, and this is where he chokes her unconscious. He rapes her, and he kills her. He then puts her body in the trunk, and, get this, he drives to a bar to have a few drinks. Like, what? I mean, he drives to a bar to have a few drinks? I, I mean, I guess he needed to let off some steam. Oh, man. So, well, when he was satisfied with his drinks... He goes back out to the parking lot, opens the trunk, and yeah, he admires Aku's body. He then takes her corpse back into his apartment and has sex with her before dismembering and disposing of her remains. And the really sad thing is that Aku's mom that night called the police to report her daughter's disappearance, and then she began frantically putting hundreds of flyers around town. And really... Well, from what we can tell, she was never given any information about Aku's uh, location or overall status. She just disappeared. Ugh, so sad. So now we want to bring to light that he does kill three other girls in a similar fashion. See, on January 7th, 1973, he murders 18-year-old Cindy Shaw. And we want to bring out how he disposes of her body because it's absolutely insane. It is crazy. So... After murdering her, he decapitates her and buries her head in his mother's garden, facing upwards towards his mother's bedroom window. When asked why he did this during interrogation, he says plainly, Mother always wanted people looking up at her. I guess you got what you wanted. Wow. Yep, and then on February 5th, 1973, he was in search of more victims. And in our research, you know, around this time, the cops are catching on to the fact that there's a man, serial killer, running around picking up hitchhikers. So they're, you know, they're telling people to be careful. Right. Um, But he winds up murdering 23-year-old Rosalind Thorpe and 20-year-old Allison Liu. He does take them back to his mom's house and keeps their bodies overnight. And then the next morning, he discarded of their dismembered bodies at Eden Canyon and off of Highway 1. Yeah, and before we get to the last two murders, we want to highlight something Ed said in a testimony after all was said and done. When asked why he removed his victim's head, he said, and we quote, I remember being told as a kid, you cut off the head and the body dies. The body is nothing after the head is cut off. Well, that's not quite true. There's a lot left in, in the girl's body without the head. I mean, I think we can agree. That is insane. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think we can make him seem even crazier for our listeners. Are you up for the challenge, Dylan? Always. I accept your challenge. Let's do it. So the last murders to take place are on April 20th, 1973. And from what we've researched, he finally got revenge on the person he wanted to get rid of the most. Any guesses? We, we all know who this is. <laughs> just in case you're not on the same page, it's his mother. But it's not just his mom. He also manages to kill his mom's best friend, Sally Hollett. Yeah, so on the night in question, Ed is at home at his mom's house, asleep. Now, 
His mom comes home late from a party and accidentally wakes Ed up upon her return. Ed gets out of bed and approaches his mom, who is reading in bed. She makes a few comments to him, and then he leaves back to his room. Innocent enough. Innocent enough. Right. And then he waits until he knows she's asleep. Now this is where things get crazy. A little crazy. He returns to her room with a claw hammer, and he bludgeons her to death, and then he slits her throat with a knife. He then decapitates her and engages in Uramashio with her. Now, we all remember what that word was. We got a definition got earlier. That so is did, the word of the day. Yes. So he did this to his mother, Dylan. I know. That's insane. Oh, and if that's not bad enough, he then takes her severed head and props it on a shelf. He spends the next hour shouting profanities at it. And afterwards, he then uses it as a dartboard. Just throwing darts at it. Just throw wow. one him. Wow. So after all of that, um, he wants to make sure he gets rid of all traces of her. And then he removes her tongue and vocal cords, and he tries to throw them down the garbage disposal. Now, from what we've read, the vocal cords were too tough for the disposal, and they shot back up. Of course they did. Mm-hmm. So he makes a comment in an interview that once the cords came up, it seemed appropriate as much as she bitched and screamed and yelled at him and then after this of course what does he do he has sex with her corpse and then he stuffs her in a closet and then he goes out to have a drink of course he seems to I think he's an alcoholic (laughs) he always has a drink once he returns he invites Sally his mom's friend over for dinner and a movie once she arrives he he strangles her decapitates her and then he spent the night with her body he puts her corpse in a closet in the morning and wrote the following note to police. Now, Dylan, do you want to read this one? I would love to. Go for it. Yes. So he writes that approximately at 5.15 a.m. Saturday, no need for her to suffer anymore at the hands of this horrible, murderous butcher. It was quick, asleep, the way I wanted. Not sloppy and incomplete, gents, just a lack of time. I got things to do. Just a little worrisome. Yeah. Just a little worrisome. What? So he writes this letter, and then he gets in his car, and where does he go? Yeah, so Kimber then drove nonstop to Pueblo, Colorado. When he arrived and didn't hear reports of his mother's murder, he called the police to confess of the crimes, because he definitely wants people to know. Yeah. They didn't take him seriously at first, and told him to call back at a later time. He called back and asked to speak to someone he knew. Because he had friends in law enforcement. Yes, so. and he then confessed to this person that he had killed his mother. He then awaited for police to arrive to arrest him. Mm-hmm. And after he was arrested, he then confessed to the murder of the other six women. And when asked why he turned himself in, he simply just said the original purpose was gone. It wasn't serving any physical or real or emotional purpose. It was just a pure waste of time emotionally. I couldn't handle it much longer. Pretty crazy. Pretty crazy. I mean, so you you think think about this? Do you think it's because like he killed his mom and 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 now it was kind of done? I think so. I think his his prize was killing his mom. He wanted to kill his mom, and he killed these other six women in preparing of how he was going to kill his mom. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And yeah, I think once once she was dead, he lost all need to do it. Yeah, it's it is so sad and it is so twisted. I feel like. Every 
episode in case that we do, it just, I feel like it gets, gets more, crazier. And more twisted. And yes. to the point where you're just like, how can like, someone get crazier? Like the world is going on. <laughs> yes. But it keeps our podcast going. It does. Sure. Yes. And now that's that we've done two crazy stories, I think we're going to keep going with that. I, I think we, we I like Yeah, I think we're here. So again, we want to shout out to Nicole for suggesting Ed Kemper to us. Yes, Nicole, you are a crazy, weird person. And we love it. <laughs> and we love you for it. So please, Nicole, keep listening. Keep sending us things. And all of our other listeners, please, please get the word out about us and send us your own comment commentary mm-hmm. and uh, and who you want us to, please to go do. with next. Please do. Yeah. But until next time. Yeah, I'm Christopher Wilkes. I'm Dylan Malone, and this is Evil Crimes. Thank you.